Hello and welcome to Exploding Helicopter, where we celebrate the cinematic art of helicopter explosion. So on each show, we're going to be looking at a film which features our favourite form of fiery aviation delight. That's because we want to honour those who bring us innovative, imaginative and ingenious chopper fireballs, as well as point the finger at filmmakers who dishonour the art by giving us poorly executed helicopter explosions. My name's Will and I'm uh, hosting this show and uh, today we're going to be uh, discussing The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, to help me with that, um, I want to introduce my guest. He's a long-time contributor to the Exploding Helicopter blog. Um, you can think of him as the sort of odd job to my goldfinger, the knick-knack to my scaramanga. Uh, welcome to the show, Joe. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, glad, uh, glad you could uh, join me for this uh, inaugural uh, edition of the podcast. Yeah, delighted to be on. Um, so uh, before we get stuck into uh, the film, um, just wondered if you'd sort of uh, seen anything interesting in the world of uh, film lately. Well, the two that I've seen in the last um, last couple of weeks have no exploding helicopters, but were interesting in their own right. So um, first off, uh, Imitation Game, which I thought was uh, excellently acted. I'd been meaning to see that for probably quite a few months and had very high expectations going into it, which were uh, fully reached. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch was fantastic. The other one, uh, which perhaps is less well known, is a film called What We Do in the Shadows, which is a, a mockumentary-style film done by the uh, one of the guys from Flight of the Concords, Jermaine Clement, who also stars in the film. Yeah, very um, very sort of unique look at a group of vampires who are living in the Vampire Centre of Wellington, New Zealand. Uh, so it sort of uh, operates as sort of like a behind-the-scenes um, sort of take on what their lives are, and you end up sort of with quite a lot of sort of ridiculousness. Sort of, it's it's quite a sort of New Zealand-esque film. Anybody that's seen sort of the previous work by the same director, um, Eagle vs Shark, should absolutely go and watch that. So when you say a sort of New Zealand-esque film, does, does that mean it's got like hobbits in and stuff? <laughs> it's quite, it's quite sort of, um, there's almost like a, a, a Kiwi style to some of these things, which I think you can find in things like Flight of the Concords, which, yeah, sort of poke fun at sort of small, small sort of New Zealand culture. Um, Reese Darby, who's also one of the main guys from Flight of the Concords, the features in there is like a, uh, a werewolf who is almost sort of identical to his character from like the Concords, but uh, yeah, he sort of you you end up sort of with uh, like jabs at things like Twilight and whatnot. So yeah, good fun film. Okay, and uh, the Imitation Game. Uh, obviously, you've mentioned uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, but I think um, that's got. I've not seen that myself, but I think it's got um, Keira Knightley. And is that is that right? It does indeed, as. Um, one of the one of the sort of additional uh, people that are brought in to help cheering a sort of team of sort of amazing statisticians and uh, yeah trying to crack the code. She does quite a good quite a good job. I mean I, I know sort of Kira Knightley uh, from sort of films to films gets quite a bit of criticism at some stage for, and, for, uh, for she gets she, she gets quite a bit of that criticism from me, which is what I was asking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, I, 
I have to say, I don't, I don't see the the criticism as being completely just in in sort of a lot of these. But I mean, when you sort of take things like I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean, I mean, yeah, fair enough. And at times, I think some of the characters that she's written into are quite bland characters. I think this one in particular um, is is pretty good. Um, she does a good job. I, I felt that she was quite believable, and yeah, it, it's an important role in there to, to sort of play against um, Cumberbatch's Turing. Yeah, this is not one where I think criticism is just. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, this week I've watched um, the uh, 1951 sci-fi classic, The Thing from uh, Another World, which uh, was the uh, film which inspired sort of uh, John Carpenter's uh, remake in uh, 1982. And then there was a sort of remake, subsequent remake prequel in uh, 20, uh, 2011. And uh, anyway, I uh, was watching the uh, original again because I'm uh, going to be sort of talking about it on a on another podcast. And uh, yeah, it was just a really great opportunity to kind of uh, re-watch uh, a classic piece of uh, 50s sci-fi. So obviously it's not, uh, it's not scary in the, in the slightest, but it's still uh, a really entertaining, uh, entertaining watch. And uh, I'd, uh, if, uh, if anyone uh, has seen the kind of later versions of the thing, they, they really should go back and watch, watch the original because um, there's, some, uh, there's some really uh, good elements to that film which really sort of stand, uh, stand up today. I don't know if it's... Uh, have you seen any of the... Uh, have you seen that version? Have we seen any of the versions, Joe? I have not seen any of those versions, I'm afraid. Um, so that's something that is completely, completely new to me. Um, I'll probably try and I'm gonna say I'm gonna try and give that a look it's it's probably unlikely well because <laughs> <laughs> we we do we do tend to have sort of differing differing to the taste but when on the mention of sort of like a slightly older sci-fi um we're of course recording on the on the day that you you might not be aware of this will but uh Leonard Nimoy has passed away today yes I saw that actually sort of about you know, just before actually, I sort of uh, booted up uh, booted up Skype to uh, to give you a ring. So um, he uh, was actually in um, actually again for this uh, for the same podcast that uh, I'm sort of doing the uh, the thing for. Um, also going to be talking about a, a 1950s uh, monster movie called Them with uh, radioactive giant ants uh, on the loose in America, and that film actually very briefly features uh, Leonard Nimoy in his very first um, acting role. Um, he could be seen sort of manning a, a telex machine. Um, if you, you have to keep your eyes uh, peeled because he's, uh, he's only on screen briefly, but uh, yeah, he's... Uh, done um from from those humble from those humble origins he's uh, had a very long and uh, illustrious career in in sci-fi so yeah it's very sad to hear that uh, that he's uh gone to another galaxy or something i imagine could you tell from that uh, very brief appearance that he was destined for greatness did he do a particularly <laughs> great tiny role he, I think he he ripped off the paper from the telex machine with some real panache. So I think if I'd seen it in 1954, I would have I would have said, yeah, there is somebody who is destined to be a household name. So uh, yeah, the signs of the signs of greatness were there. Okay, so um, let's get uh, stuck into uh, today's film. Um, as I've already mentioned, we're looking at the 1977 James Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. Well, well, well. 
British agent in love with the Russian agent. Your time's running out, Stromberg. Yours too, Mr. Bond. Yours too. It's the biggest. It's the best. It's Bond. And beyond. So The Spy Who Loved Me was Moore's third film as James Bond, and it was the uh, tenth in the series. Joe, what's your sort of history with The Spy Who Loved Me and uh, and the Bond franchise in general? So I've got to, I'll fully admit to being a big Roger Moore fan. He's probably he's probably my favourite Bond, and he is he's certainly when I was growing up, he was probably the first Bond that I can actually remember uh, seeing. And my my favourite Bond film is uh, his first appearance in uh, Live and Let Die. This one, this one is an interesting film, and you say it's the third one. I sort of couldn't really remember the the sort of uh, start, or well, probably the first half of the film up until the point of rewatching it very recently. And it seems um, I originally sort of had a, a view that it was probably one of one of the better more films, but sort of came away from from the rewatch um, in the last week, sort of. Just, um, yeah, changing my views a little bit. Uh, some of the things that I thought worked uh, well initially sort of uh, perhaps don't stand up on, on the rewatch. Um, on a very basic level, like, I mean, I remember the, the sort of key bit of the film being the uh, submarine-related elements to the story, mm. which, like... It seems as though it takes forever to actually get to to that point. There's a lot that goes on in the film. I mean, it sort of jumps from uh, sort of starts off in Austria and then yeah, there's an extended Egypt section. There's an extended Egypt section, which I think is because they've because they've never been to Egypt before in a James Bond film. I think (laughs) that I think that was the sole motivation. It seemed as though because they they had taken the, the the time to actually go out and film stuff there that they they felt that they needed to have a certain number of minutes in there to justify the, the no doubt exorbitant costs that they would have made to to go out there at the time. It felt it felt baggy that particular bit. Uh, yeah, I would re I I'd really agree actually because I um, haven't seen this all the way through for a long time actually. So um, and I had a like the exact same experience i you know in my mind i was thinking this is sort of one of the you know this is one of moore's classic um it's one of the classic bonds or it's certainly one of like moore's classic appearances as bond Mm -hmm. and when i watched the film like yourself i had a very clear memory of how the film ends the 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 kind of all that the sort of mass fight in in the submarine pen but I, i again with you and obviously the the, the the beginning of the film is completely iconic, so you know I knew exactly what that was all going to happen. But after, let's say, the rest of the first half, I didn't have a clear memory of it, and it was really draggy. Um, it really um, was really pretty dull. Let's not mince words. No, I, I completely agree. And I mean, some of the some of the scenes seemed as though they had been directly sort of stolen from other bits of uh, Roger Moore's Bond Bond film. So, case in point would be the the attack on the train, um, which seemed to be almost an exact duplicate to the end of Liver Liver Let Die. 
complete up until the point of the henchman getting kicked out of a window from the from the moving train. Well, I made it. I actually got in my my notes here. Deja Bond because <laughs> I was like, there are scenes here. I've got the train. Um, didn't remind me of um, Live and Let Die. The train fight reminded me of um, from Russia with Love um, when Sean Connery fights um, Robert Shaw um, on the train in that film. The the shark pool could easily be the piranha pool from You Only Live Twice. The underwater, there's an underwater fight sequence um, as well, which, you know, Thunderball for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, the swallowing subs was very reminiscent of the swallowing of satellites in You Only Live Twice. And um, <laughs> yeah, it just, there were just, it just seemed, I mean, the Bond films, the, the producers themselves say, you know, Bond, you know, the, the whole point of a Bond film is to give you exactly the same thing but in a way you've never had before but this felt like we were getting um what we'd had before in a very similar way to what we'd had uh before i completely agree with that but there, yeah there's there's also there's also the element i mean bond films do sort of take bits from the the previous incarnations of bond i mean we, so you mentioned the, um, the sort of ski scene at the beginning, which I think is actually probably one of the, one of the better, uh, better sort of, uh, action sequences in there. I think it's sort of, it's the later, later sort of Roger Moore film, uh, For Your Eyes Only, which goes back and does that again. And yeah, it, I mean, there, there are plenty of instances where, stuff will get copied and uh this this one felt as though that had just been done to the extreme but for um but for for all of the sort of for all of those kind of gripes and the fact that um you know the plot in the first half did seem a bit draggy and it was kind of recycling bits from sort of other bonds there was for me um like a really interesting aspect to the kind of setup of this this plot which felt a bit different and something that was actually really sort of potentially interesting. So um, in this film, um, Roger Moore is, is paired up with a kind of counterpart from the the KGB, a lady called Major Anya Asimova, who's uh, played by Barbara Bark. And um, they, uh, at the kind of at the beginning of the film, it's sort of set up that uh, Bond killed her boyfriend. Mm. Um, and that sort of is something we know but the characters don't know until this is until this is revealed um sort of about halfway through um halfway through the film and that sort of um uh that idea that idea that uh and you know after learning that uh basically bond killed her her boyfriend uh the barbara bark kind of promises to uh to kill bond um once their kind of uh, mission is over so there's a sort of you know so there was there's a really um so like within this film there's an interesting dynamic because bond has kind of been paired with people people in other films before but they've always been sort of um you know they've always had a particular skill but they've never been bond's equal whereas here he's being paired with the kgb's top operative so somebody who's supposedly as good as uh, as Bond is, and then there's this dynamic of actually, you know, you know, this woman could, if she finds out this piece of information, could just want to kill Bond, and could very well, you know, should have the professional expertise to do that. And so there's this, there's a the kind of potential, you know. So I thought that that was a really interesting sort of idea, but I I I felt that they really didn't um, exploit that as uh, as much as possible. I don't know what your um, thoughts were on that. 
I think there are a couple of instances where, I mean, you you see sort of her get the better of um, a bond. So I think the the key one is they, they've clearly read each other's um, uh, files on exactly what uh, what what their sort of I don't know what their backgrounds we- are, what their backgrounds are, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and so you've got that um, got that particular sequence on the on the boat uh, as they're sort of going back to going back to Cairo where I think Triple X's character has probably sort of just noticed the, the, the bit in the file that says show, show uh, Bond a bit of leg and <laughs> we, we can distract him and, and then sedate him with a cigar. Um, so yeah, that, that worked out a treat. And then the next, the next sequence that you see is, is, uh, uh, Bond waking up dishevelled, um, just on the on the docks, being laughed at by the locals. Yeah, um, I think that there were some, mo- yeah, there were some sort of good moments of like banter between um, uh, between the uh, between the sort of two characters, and um, there was some, you know, the, I, I thought that, you know, Maybe the that has to be said with a bit of like sort of slight chauvinistic stuff. So oh, there's a lot of chauvinism. <laughs> <laughs> the the bit in particular where they're driving uh driving away and and sort of you've got like the the women drivers sort of comment and like oh, do you do you want me to drive and everything like that um, yeah mm. but there was there was some good there was some good there were some good lines in there as well in the terms of the banter so I think at one moment um Roger Moore says oh thanks thank you for saving my life and then she sort of replies we all make mistakes mr bond and <laughs> you know that that you know that that was you know that so there was the the so there were some really good moments but for me the there weren't enough of those moments and and what moments that there were like that were really spoiled because let's be frank here barbara bark can't act for love and the money a little bit wooden I think you're being, I think you're being exceedingly charitable. I, 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 I accept that that is that it was not a great performance. Um. <laughs> I mean, there was one, there was one really um, good scene um, in in the film. It's actually the scene where where uh, where Asimova finds out that um, that Bond killed her her boyfriend and suddenly like the the tone gets the tone of that scene gets really serious and you know and and and, uh bond has this sort of great bit of dialogue where he sort of says well you know yes i did kill him and you know it it was him or me this is the this is the business we're in and um you know roger moore you know not somebody who gets many props for his acting he actually he actually delivers that scene um you know really well with a with a kind of bit of gravitas that he's not usually credited with in his role of bond but you know that was the moment where you just were crying out for like a the actor opposite him to sort of to have the presence to kind of then you know deliver the lot deliver the lines that um that that she has about sort of threatening to kill bond because when she sort of then you know after hearing that then says like well when this mission is over i'm going to kill you it just it the, it just doesn't feel this you absolute, don't feel the threat there. No, there's no threat. There's no danger. It doesn't feel like, you know, and then at the end of the film, you know, Bond kind of, you know, where she potentially could kill him. You know, Bond just like smirks his way out of trouble and <laughs> by popping open a champagne bottle. I mean, it just 
It just felt who, like they had... Who hasn't, who hasn't <laughs> smoked their way out of that sort of situation? Obviously, Roger Moore was going to raise an eyebrow, give it a bit of a smirk, and survive. That was always going to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I probably, you know, the, the, I guess the pattern had been set in the in the other two in the in, the, in these Moore's previous Bond outings that um, that yeah that would be the uh, his exit uh, that'd be his escape strategy for for sure. But um, we haven't um, we haven't talked at all about um, Richard Keel and no. his uh, what I would say in terms of the like plus points if we're gonna um, sort of raise it. Jaws is a pretty good uh, Bond villain, and probably, like, at, at the time that I watched it when I was a lot younger, like, I was actually scared by this character. I mean, he's absolutely massive. He's got metal teeth that can cut through uh, chains and whatnot, and, yeah. Uh, you, he's got a, he's got an on-screen presence, and can, considering he has, like, zero lines, that is a character that has has done pretty well. Uh, yeah, I would. I'd, he's become iconic, um, and as you say, he's managed to do that by without actually delivering a, a line of dialogue, which um, you know is uh, sort of you know testimony to uh, to kind of like the character that was um, designed for him, and then sort of you know testimony to kind of the what he uh, the, what he did uh, with that as well. And I I, I I also similarly you know watched a lot of Bond films when I was young, and yeah, he was um, there was definitely um, you definitely felt sort of you know because something really like being shot is one thing, but kind of being bitten to death by steel teeth in your neck i mean that's a really up close and personal way of, of killing somebody and that's um you know there's that definitely gives him an edge on like many of the sort of bond henchmen in the sense that the way his manner of how he's going to kind of dispose of you is is really sort of has just a it just is much more sort of brutal um than than the sort of many of the ways that uh, these other henchmen sort of have designed for them to dispatching opponents and he's indestructible like anything can happen he, like uh, you end up with sort of uh, egyptian ruins getting dumped on him and sort of surviving this uh the sort of car crash where the car sort of jumped uh, over the cliff of a and sort of into a house he just sort of dusts down his his blue suit and uh, exits. Well, I think that's obviously that's down to his sort of um, physical presence because it is sort of he is so huge and so uh, imposing that it is it is actually sort of conceivable that he could survive a, you know, a car crash off a cliff or having a half a half a pyramid toppled on him that he could actually sort of crawl his way uh, crawl his way out of that so uh, yeah i think that's he's got a stature which kind of manages to sort of uh, make some of the more outlandish things that he's required to do in the film actually seem give them a level of plausibility which uh, another kind of uh, actor wouldn't be able to pull off yeah completely agree so uh, what did um so uh, I think uh, we we may have to return to uh, having sort of uh, talked up a couple of positives we may have to return to some of the uh, more patchy uh, <laughs> parts of uh, parts of this film um I was really because again as as I sort of mentioned before I hadn't seen this film all the way through for uh, for a mm. long for a long time and so I had completely sort of 
forgotten what sort of Strongberg's plan was in this, you know, what his, what his kind of, uh, strategy was for world domination and um i i pretty basic it's pretty basic yeah it's blow the world up and everyone goes and lives underwater (laughs) i've had enough of this world it's time to create a new world under the sea i mean i i sort of made a note to myself like is this the worst plan ever (laughs) you know is this the worst plan ever of any bond villain well I mean, when you when you've got the aquatic car sort of giving like a the his like Karl Strongberg sort of aquatic city sort of uh, a look, it doesn't even look as though it's been particularly finished. The guy is unprepared for his own plan. What's what's going to happen once the once the world is ended? If actually the only world that there is is that little lair that he's got and no no aquatic city. Well, yeah, I mean, and I don't know how many sort of. Um you know tins of baked beans he's packed away on that that thing but you know he's going to run out of fresh grub after a bit isn't he and you're not going to be able to sort of grow anything on a irradiated earth so i mean i i i as i i i think you've got a good point there he does i don't think he's kind of thought through perhaps he's not familiar with um you know the half-life of uh, nuclear radiation that you know he's not going to be able to um you know go and get any greens anytime soon so He's just going to have to live off whatever he's got in the uh, got in his underwater lair canteen. <laughs> There's a lot of fish there. I mean, <laughs> you probably don't want to be eating the uh, the particularly rare specimens of of, of mm. fish. But I mean, yeah, that will that will make well, you survive yeah, probably that, uh, a couple um, of weeks. I mean, yeah, if you like sushi, you're probably going to be fine in Stromberg's um, sort of. Uh, world 2.0 but uh if you yeah if you're not if you're not big on uh sushi then um i think you're going to be uh in a bit of uh in a bit of uh trouble there's a there's a kind of there are a few um sort of core components really to sort of uh every sort of bond film i don't know I, there's a sort of a few I, I just thought we might sort of uh rattle through uh a few of them and just uh mm-hmm. give our sort of uh our thoughts on uh on uh what we, uh, how we saw them in terms of the kind of the Bond franchise sort of history. The uh, obviously uh, one, you know, iconic part of any sort of Bond film is the uh, is the Bond theme tune. Uh, what did you make mm. of uh, Carly Simon's effort in this one? I think probably one of my favourite ones, and I think really? yeah, yeah, really? I I like it, and I, it's I think it's the first. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the first? theme tune that in the the title name is not the same name as the film name is that right um i think you are yes i mean it's got um i think the lyrics have got in there the the film title but um in the actual sort of title of the song i i think it's good um not my favorite but one of my favorites you see i i really i really hate it and i think it's because um I think it's because it's basically a ballad and I don't want uh, my Bond theme tune to be a ballad. You know, I want a, I want it to be big, bold, lots of ballsy brass and, you know, kind of like up-tempo kind of percussion. I don't want this lacrimose ballad that um, 
Carly Simon sort of uh, warbles warbles out in in this one. So I mean, it is it is um in fairness in fairness to the points you've made, it is probably one of, it's probably one of the most well known Bond theme tunes. You know, it's it's stood it, the test of time, I think. Whereas uh, yeah, not not all have um, no. Um, and actually, I mean, from a musical point of view, I think it's it's one of the the strong bits of it. I think the rest of the music in the film is all over the place. It seems to just jump between like sort of uh, like disco bond, um, yeah, disco bond, absolutely. But it just it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to sort of uh, like land on a particular particular theme that's sort of constant throughout it just sort of jumps higgledy piggledy from one to the next yeah because what like one you've got some really um horrible sort of disco tinged synth um sections thinking which, of the egypt uh, yes yeah. which it feels like were oh we need to sort of you know have something a kind of contemporary note it didn't feel like um, like they really believed in in like introducing that element, and the bits that the bits of the music that worked much better were the bits which sounded more sort of traditional, more classic Bond, which were kind of you know big orchestra, lush lush string sections. Those bits felt mm. like um, felt like they belong, felt more natural to the film, felt like they belonged there. Whereas the those kind of uh, the uh, disco Bond moments felt. Um, a bit out of place and a bit like people were kind of um, like they were doing it because they thought it was a good idea, not because they believed it was a good idea. Mm. We've already um, sort of talked about uh, the henchmen in this, uh, in this film. Obviously we've talked about sort of Richard Keel um, because obviously the henchmen are sort of a a classic sort of part of any sort of Bond film. Um, But what about the sort of action set pieces uh, in general in the, in this Bond so the the ski scene at the beginning, I think, is is uh, a good one that is then sort of uh, when more comes up to for your eyes only, they redo it, and that's um that's the yeah bond on skis always works. Um, <laughs> the only the only um, <laughs> potentially low point that I would sort of uh, highlight from that action sequence. It's the end where he, you've got that sort of brilliant, um, brilliant sort of skiing off the, off the cliff moment. And then bearing in mind, this is, this is a, um, somebody that's supposed to be a secret agent, uh, where your identity is a closely guarded secret and you're, you're supposed to sort of not be particularly, particularly sort of like, showy sort of, I don't know, you'd never see Bond sort of going around with a name badge with James Bond on it. So having a having a parachute that sort of opens up that is the the Union Jack parachute seems totally out of place uh, and over the top as as you're being sort of chased by sort of Russian agents. I I didn't. I mean, I, I mean, if you're going to start picking, if you're going to start sort of nitpicking like that, you might as well sort of ask actually, why is he even wearing a parachute? You know, not generally something skiers are known for known for wearing. So to just sort of wonder why why he's got a Union Jack one as opposed to uh, to sort of more uh, 
more subtle one. I mean, and, and also remember, let's remember, he's got a pair of uh, canary yellow salopettes on in this scene. So um, he, he, he's not exactly... Um... Just wanting, wanting him to sort of uh, get, get some sort of distraction away from his appalling ski attire. I, I think possibly, very, very, very possibly, very, very possibly. But um, I mean, I think, but I think that, um, but really, actually, I think we actually, we could be stuck for actually sort of talking about great, other action sequences in this film because i i would probably say there really aren't really any other great sort of action sequences in this although there is one which is the reason we're talking about this film but um but apart but aside from that there's you know there's a few fights along the way but they they don't really i you know they didn't really kind of get my uh get my uh sort of heart beating faster as I was sort of, you know, watching them uh, slumped on the sofa. I did. I did enjoy the, uh, like, the action sequence towards the end where you've basically got the crews of the uh, captured submarines basically fighting for their freedom. Um, I think it's it's uh, yeah that um, that felt like it was pretty well done. Um, yeah, I'd agree. But it, I think the I think for me it just felt like a long. So we had a great you know the great ski sequence at the beginning of the film, and then we've got um, you know two hours and four minutes to wait until the um, until that kind of uh, you know the mass the mass kind of machine gun uh, running around. Which again, um, going back to uh, Deja Bond. You know the that submarine pen. If you'd swapped it for the inside of a volcano, would have been the end of um, you only you only live twice again. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just felt like um, it just felt like there weren't quite. I, I needed. I probably needed another couple of. If those other fights had maybe been a bit better, I might have felt like I'd had my uh, quotient of violence um, in this uh, in this film. And then lastly, obviously, uh, a Bond film uh, wouldn't be a Bond film without its Bond girls. What did you uh, what did you make of the ones uh, on display for us here? I think, well, you you obviously sort of touched upon the, I suppose, the the element of the unique element, which was having sort of one of the Bond girls being a Bond equal, which I think, yeah, work as an idea works well. Uh, perhaps in execution, you sort of mentioned the, mm. the sort of slightly, slight, whilst there were some good scenes and some powerful scenes, I, I think like um, the acting could have potentially been better. In terms of the others, uh, I'll be honest, Will, I'm struggling to, to remember that, that many other other sort of notable ones in there. Um, I think the, the, I think the other one, the other notable one, it would be uh, uh, Caroline Munro, who is uh, Naomi, who's the uh, who's uh, one of Stromberg's assistants. Ah, uh, the helicopter pilot. Yes, indeed. Aha, uh-huh, yes. Um, yeah, and there were there was the, I guess actually, the character that's in. Um, Goldeneye reminded me a bit of, uh, yeah, I thought there was a bit of a similarity between the two, sort of the, like the sort of edginess to them. But I, I thought I, there was a good. I think Caroline Monroe had a good moment when she is it the, is it the look across at yes, the car when yes. she when she winks at Bond. I thought that was <laughs> uh, I thought that was a I thought that was a nice uh, I thought that was a nice little touch. Yeah. Were there any other kind of uh, sort of 
smaller moments that you sort of uh, spotted in the film that you uh, particularly enjoyed? Yeah, I, I th- I'm actually struggling to pick out that much more of uh, of a sort of enjoyable thing <laughs> in the film. Like the the length of it, it does feel long. It did um it did sort of did feel as though it dried. I I suppose like of um a couple of couple of things that are sort of enjoyed that were that felt different. So like the the KGB MI6 sort of um crossover I thought worked quite well. And you also sort of saw the interesting dynamics between the two different organizations, particularly when they're sort of going through like the the mission and mm. like going through the the Q sort of gadget center in Egypt, which has just been converted out of the pyramids by the looks of it. Um, yeah, uh, and you also sort of see them um, addressing each other by their first names, which doesn't tend to happen quite a lot in Bond films. You obviously sort of have like. Oh, yeah, I mean, do people even have first names in Bond films? I mean, it's a good question. Um, but they they clearly do in this one. <laughs> M, M is called Miles, so there we yes, go. Yes, that's very. Yeah, you never. I don't think. I don't think I've ever heard that in a in another. I couldn't tell you another. And uh, isn't um, isn't uh, Q referred to by his um, by his he, real he name at one moment? Major Barrett, was it, or something or like that? Boothby or Booth Bo- or Bo- something. Major Boothroyd. Boothroyd, some... yeah. I think we got there. It's one of those. It's one of those. Um, yeah. There was one. There was one sort of smaller moment that I really um, that I really enjoyed. So it's when um, the uh, not very uh, entertaining uh, Egypt sequence. Although this is a this is a rare glimmer of wit in there, where. Uh, where kind of Bond um, sort of strolls into uh, the nightclub to kind of rendezvous with the kind of contact that he needs to needs to find, mm. and he he sits down uh, and introduces himself with the with his usual you know the name's Bond James Bond, and and the guy just says what of it, and he clearly has absolutely no idea who James Bond is, who James Bond is. <laughs> I just thought that was a really um, just kind of playing with the playing with your expectations of because, you know, at some point Bond's going to say that line. And usually it has some sort of resonance for the character hearing that line. You know, they they sort of, um, you know, it has some sort of meaning to them. But here here it's they, they play it for a, uh, for a joke. And, and, uh, I and thought it was two very minutes funny. later, he's dead. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he got his just desserts for just not realizing who Bond was. Should have, um, yeah. You've got to really got to keep up with who's who in the if you're going to kind of stay alive in the uh, the espionage world. I think that's the clear takeaway from uh, from that uh, from that uh, uh, from that scene. Um, one la- one last thing that I I didn't realize till um, till seeing it. So did you did you hold on for the end of the credits um, where? They say basically James Bond will will appear next in For Your Eyes Only, and I just sort of read that and then sort of did a double take and I was like, if only that were true, because the next film that comes out is Moonraker, which is accelerated forward unexpectedly, the film that nobody can defend. After watching this, I don't know what you if you would agree with this, but I actually thought that Moonraker. No, is is no no don't wait no wait I'm making no don't 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 panic I'm not going to make any defence of Moonraker which I know is like your if you're if you're, you're going to suddenly say that that's not the worst Roger Moore film 
we're we're gonna have problems. Okay, don't worry. I'm not I'm not here to make um, that case tonight, but possibly <laughs> another day. But do you think I was struck by the thought that Moonraker is actually almost a remake of The Spy Who Loved Me? Because the the basic plot outline is the same, is the sense that um, Drax wants to poison the world and everyone goes off to, about, you know, his chosen few go off to abandon the Earth and, and live in space. And, you know, a lot of the, the ending of that scene, the kind of, you know, the, the sort of the mass shootout, again, very similar to the, the ending of um, The Spy Who Loved Me, it just felt... There were quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of similarities, like and as you say, it was, it was Moonraker was rushed out to try and cash in on Star Wars. Um, I don't quite oh. see how that was ever going to quite work as a quite work as an idea. And it just one, I just wondered if they just thought, oh, change the name of get that script out from the Spy Love Me, change the names. Okay, where it says where it says underwater, put space and. <laughs> You know, because you know, Jaws is Jaws is Jaws is also in uh, Moonraker as well, which you know, it just yeah. feels like I don't know. I that, say... that, char- that character is ruined in Moonraker, uh, but yeah, I I'll be honest with you, I hadn't considered that before, mainly because I try not to think about <laughs> Moonraker at, uh, if at all possible. But yeah, on the face of it, uh, yeah, the the Spy Who Loved Me has quite a simplistic uh, storyline and. You could argue that Moonraker has gone even more simplistic by just taking elements that weren't necessarily particularly good elements and just um, changing the the location for them. It is the same director, of course, so maybe he just really, really liked those particular elements of of this film and just wanted to, well, didn't have enough time to think of something different, <laughs> given it had been rushed forward. And I'm like, well, we'll just go with the same thing and just change change it into space. There you go. Because just to sort of perhaps sort of wrap up the discussion, I, mean, I just wondered, do we, because I thought that The Spy Loved Me maybe marks the, the kind of the start of the decline for the, certainly for the more period of the Bond franchise, because we see a few things in this film which become evering, which basically take over in subsequent films to the detriment of like the kind of Bond film. So the, I mean, there is an awful lot of uh, smut in The Spy Who Loved Me, but I think in some of the later ones, it then, it then sort of runs almost um, out of control. The, the gadget situation, I think it's, it's kind of okay on gadgets here, but I kind of, I felt like it was on the threshold. Um, Mm. And, um, also the elements of parody so there's a there's a brief moment here where the Lawrence of Arabia music from the film Lawrence of Arabia is kind of played over one of the the Egypt scenes and uh, apparently that was dubbed in as an in joke like as the film was being edited but the the kind of the director liked it and left it in and obviously in some of the later films that you know naming no names but octopusy is the one that comes to mind where the the elements of parody um just sort of uh, run uh, dangerously um, out of control in that film. So, yeah, I I was struck by I I felt like uh, the Spy Who Loved Me was a bit of a sort of the sort of the turning point in uh, the Moore era of the Bond franchise. A shift a shift change that declined thereafter. Yeah, I think I think it certainly declines in the in the immediate film following it. I think it does. Uh, I think he does sort of pick up a little bit in. In um, uh, your, eyes only. your eyes only. I think that there is a recovery there that that I hadn't really previously 
I suppose sort of acknowledge the extent that it is. I think it's a much better film on a rewatch than um, than perhaps people would give it credit. But thereafter, I mean, it's a very it's a very steady decline till Moore's retirement from the role. Nothing, nothing. I think sort of will compare uh, from his his sort of Bond back catalogue to uh, Live and Let Die and uh, Man with the Golden Gun, which I think are are his best ones. Oh yeah, I'd um, I'd absolutely uh, I'd I'd agree with that. Although I I know you prefer Live and Let Die, I think I prefer uh, Man with the Golden Gun, but um, uh, I, I'm not. Uh, they're both uh, they're both great films. So uh, why don't why don't we just uh, why don't we pass as friends on the on that one um so obviously we very need, well we uh, obviously need to uh, to talk about the exploding helicopters um in this indeed film. there are there are two for us to uh, two for us to enjoy mm. um the first takes place sort of quite early in the film where uh, stromberg um has uh, has kind of uh, got what he needs from a couple of couple of people a couple of associates and Rather than uh, rather than pay them off, he decides to uh, blow them up in their helicopter uh, after they've left his uh, underwater lair, and um, he uh, uses a sort of remote control bomb to sort of uh, blow up the uh, blow up the helicopter, uh, which we get to watch on a sort of uh, little video screen that Stromberg's got. Uh, nice nice to see that Stromberg like appreciates watching exploding helicopter as much as we do. Actually, that's uh, <laughs> I. You know, it's nice to know that um, you know I, I share the same taste as a megalomaniac um, who wants to. You, you, you and another life could be a Bond villain. <laughs> I, why do I have to wait to another life? Why can't it be in this life? I'll just leave that. I'll just leave that thought with you. There. So, uh, what, did, what did you make? What did you make of the uh, of, the, of that first uh, exploding helicopter? It's pretty simple. Um, you. You necessarily don't expect it, actually. I mean, he he does have the chance to obviously, as they're going in the elevator before leaving the complex, he could have uh, mm. could have pressed the button to to send them down to the sharks, uh, as he did with uh, the female character that was chomped on just minutes before. She was um, in it so briefly we can't remember her name. I don't think I don't think that ref- I don't think that reflects ill on us. But yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so yeah, you you sort of feel ah well maybe this maybe this Strongberg character has decided he's had his taste of death for the day and <laughs> is going to allow these seemingly well-meaning uh, uh, technician people to to disappear off um, with their money, but no, uh, all of a sudden yeah gets gets the chopper on the screen and just explodes it and then. Makes a very very quick sort of phone call, does he not? To like mm. inform inform the the families that they died at sea in a tragic accident. Yes, that was a nice uh, that was a nice way to uh, to wrap up that little sequence with that bit of uh, very black humour. But I agree, the kind of the the helicopter explosion. Uh, was it's good to see. It was a bit. Um, it was it was quite basic. Um, they didn't linger terribly on it. I would have. You barely I, see it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's it's visible for a what, handful of seconds and then gone. And norm, normally, uh, normally Bond films are sort of you know keen to sort of show you uh, show you how much money they're spending on them, but uh, it felt like they uh, didn't quite appreciate that people actually 
you know want to see a helicopter explode and that uh, yeah we could have seen a bit more. I thought we could, we could have seen a bit more there I was a bit uh, I was a bit I felt a little shortchanged by uh, it's by that one perhaps the case that they in knowing that there was going to be a second one later on in the film they didn't want to didn't want to satisfy everybody's chopper fireball uh, desires just on this sort of opening sequence. It was sort of, you know, it was sort of exploding helicopter hors d'oeuvre. Yeah, the, the appetizer to the, the, appetizer. To the main course. Which was uh, which was to follow. Do you, Joe, do you want to do you want to describe the uh, the main course? The main course. So the the Bond car, uh, which is some sort of white aquatic Lotus uh, that Bond is driving, uh, having having sort of been allowed back from uh, Stromberg's lair somewhat inexplicably. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, allow them back onto onto the land so that they get back into their car and then kill them. Don't um, don't just sort of get rid of them on the boat back into the uh into dry land yeah and uh, so there's there's this chase going on with the aforementioned jaws in, uh, in sort of a, a car that's sort of trying to trying to sort of uh well fire aimless aimless bullets over an extended sequence at uh at the lotus to no effect his car's gone off the off the cliff and then you've got this helicopter um uh, that is um yeah Piloted by one of Stromberg's uh, villains, whose name escapes me. Well, Caroline Caroline Monroe or Naomi. Caroline Monroe, and yeah, the the car has tried to sort of disappear into the sea, um, has turned into turned into sort of the submarine Lotus, if you like, and is then um, yeah the the helicopter for some reason is then just. <laughs> stationary above the above the water um most most convenient most convenient uh and rather than like i don't know disappear or like fly off and try and work out what that's going on just sort of lingers a bit and bond quite coldly just fires a missile into the into the helicopter where there is a um, uh, yeah i would say a uh a fiery fiery mess that is is certainly uh, uh, an improvement on the appetizer that we had earlier in the film. Yes, and I think there was um, there was a, obviously we, what we get here is um, you know we've got the you know we've been treated to uh, the aquatic car which we you know until this until this sequence we didn't know that it kind of had this uh, these kind of properties and we certainly didn't know that it had an onboard missile system. Um, so we kind of Which get Bond, it, like immediately understands how to work it as well. Um, I mean, he, when he when he gets the car originally, Q is sort of just about to explain all the features, and, and Bond's like, "Oh, don't worry, I'm, I'm going off." Q is left frowning, and then all of a sudden, yeah, he, he manages to manages to work the car perfectly. Indeed, and so yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's uh, it, it was uh, obviously as fans of. Uh, I imagine for fans of uh, for fans of aquatic cars and for fans of exploding helicopters, this was a this, this was a crazy film that combined the two. But this one does it admirably. <laughs> yeah, it's possibly the, the it's, it's possibly the um, if I move on to doing um, an exploding helicopter and aquatic car uh, website, this this will definitely be one of the first okay. films I look to uh, I look to canonize uh, in that on. on 
in that uh, in that genre. So yeah, it's a really um, yeah good imaginative, um, innovative kind of uh, helicopter explosion, which is kind of you know really what you're sort of looking for when you see uh, when you see one explode. You want to see a bit of imagination um, deployed, and you know we get that for sure here. Um, and uh, they kind of it's it's good that they'd uh, they'd sort of built up the. Um, you know that they'd kind of established uh, Carolyn Monroe's kind of character in the film, and you know they'd had that little scene where she sort of uh, winks at Bond. So there's a yep. sort of playful rivalry between them, so that uh, so it doesn't just feel like some sort of anonymous villain is being dispatched. There's a bit of a there's a there's a bit of a kind of um, a, you you know you, you you kind of know the character a bit. You're invested in them. And I think that always adds to uh, to the kind of enjoyment when you uh, when you see it. Uh, blown up so uh yeah really good and obviously you know bond what you kind of what you you know it's the kind of thing you you expect and want from bond you want to sort of see innovative action that you've not seen before and uh, that sequence definitely definitely delivers that well in terms of innovation i mean how many other instances are there of a an aquatic car missiling a helicopter probably i'm, I'm gonna guess it's zero there I can uh, I'm probably the, the the you know the most qualified person to in the world to uh answer this question um probably the only time I'll ever get to make that statement and <laughs> <laughs> and um I yeah there are no other instances so yeah no you're you're right it's a totally unique sequence so uh fair play to the all the writers and the director of uh, of this film for for serving that up to us you know one for... one slight issue with it that i have um uh if i'm going to sort of add a criticism is we've we've established that the helicopter is directly above the car the missile goes straight up it it uh, obviously explodes the, the helicopter what do you think happens to the helicopter wreckage given that the car is immediately beneath and somehow avoids any any sort of smashing mm. into. Well, I mean, if, mm, do we know that it's directly beneath? Because Bond does have to aim his missile that he fires. Now, admittedly, it does seem to just go directly upwards, <laughs> but completely upwards. But okay, maybe maybe you just maybe you just floored it and got out <laughs> of the way. But uh, no, it's uh, you know what I I had completely missed that and you know what that would have been actually that would have been really cool if if the wreckage had then you know they cut to a shot through the winds windshield of the car and you'd seen the wreckage of the helicopter like sink past the past the car to the ocean floor that would have been i would have liked to have seen sort of roger moore just like looking up into the wing mirror and just sort of seeing it sort of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the background, uh, just appearing, and then some sort of some sort of typical quip could have followed. Yeah, but I think they, yeah, they, I think they may have missed an opportunity there to to put a little cherry on the uh, exploding helicopter cake for us. I think. Mm. Okay, well, I think that uh, just about wraps it up for uh, for today. So, um, Joe, I'd like to uh, to thank you for uh, for joining me on this uh, on this uh, inaugural show. A pleasure. I hope I hope that uh, you won't become the sort of George Lazenby of this podcast and uh, not come back for a future uh, for a future edition. I I hope that's not the case. I hope I'm I am the Roger Moore of this uh, this feature. 
it, what in that you'll sort of decline, that I, I, decline I, I, after I, I, your third or no, fourth in. Okay start and then just sort of after after the second or third outing, everybody's just waiting for me to leave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well um, we'll see. Um, we'll we'll leave we'll leave it to uh, to history to find out whether you're going to be the George Lazenby the the Roger Moore or or which which bond you're going to kind of most resemble in terms of your contribution to this project so uh, we'll 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 we'll, uh, we'll pick this discussion up at a later date i think so it just uh, really remains for me to say that uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today then please do check out the exploding helicopter website uh, which you can find at explodinghelicopter.blogspot.com you can also follow exploding helicopter on twitter at shopperfireball um, if you want to get in touch to let us know what you think or to suggest a film for us to review, then you can email us at explodinghelicopter at hotmail.co.uk. Just like to finally thank by uh, saying thanks to Tim for the music, for the music indeed. And uh, we'll be back soon. And until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters.